The talk is about the practice of mindfulness. It's about just being uh, here for the ride. There's a, a song, a recent song that has been playing on the radio as I drive to different places in Hawaii. Uh, she's Native Hawaiian. And it's a beautifully simple song called uh, I'm Just Along for the Ride. And I won't share all the lyrics, but uh, it's a very uh, celebratory song about being here on this planet just for the ride. And even though her friends and teachers and parents want her to uh, maybe uh, get involved in a lot of ambition, and competition, uh, and a certain kind of measured success, she keeps wanting to just be here for the ride. And it's, it's just such a wonderful uh, reminder about uh, the process of life, being here fully for the process of right, life. One deep truth is that life is changing, anicca, impermanence. And because of this impermanence, we never know what's going to happen. These are the deep truths. Um, And I think it's important to ask ourselves on this planet, you know, what car are we driving? And what town are we driving through? Are we lost? Do we have a map? Do we feel confused? If we can start to see our life and our practice as practicing, learning to drive through all of human experience, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, uh, no matter what car we have, (laughs) no matter what town we're in, no matter whether we're lost or clear, uh, we start to learn to be able to drive through the town of doubt or the town of illness, or the town of happiness, the town of metta, the town of anger. Uh, and we're here just for the ride. Sometimes when we're on the ride, we have to stop the car and brake. Uh, say anger comes up. Uh, do we say no? Is there resistance? Uh, I'm not going to go through this town of anger even though it's happening, even though we're in the town, we say, no, I'm not going to drive through this town. So we uh, don't go through with the flow of life. We're not with the truth of life. And we suffer because we're in the town, (laughs) but we won't won't acknowledge it. We don't drive through it. Uh, So we feel sometimes defeated by that experience and more afraid because we don't learn how to drive through the town. Or maybe we're having a different experience where we're having a really wonderful sitting and it's really pleasant and we have some insight and we think, I want this to last forever. Uh, And there's that attachment. Uh, And we don't, we're not preparing ourselves for the truth of things that is going to pass. And so we, we try to stay in the town even though life is moving, life is changing. And there are 
are the times when we feel like we don't have a map, when we're lost, confused. And we can even start to relate to those experiences. Are just, they're just experiences that we can learn to drive through. It's the being lost town. It's the being confused town. So that we never have to feel like, you know, there's a problem. Each experience is okay if we learn to drive through it. And they're all, these are all parts of the ups and downs of our human experience. In this world of change, what is it that allows us to go uh, through the process of life? What allows us to keep driving through the towns and learning is mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. And the practice of mindfulness brings a great protection. Uh, Our conditioned way of relating to change in life is with aversion and attachment. There are old defense system, and slowly mindfulness and compassion and metta start replacing that old defense system. They're a more skillful relationship to change. There are different ways to try to describe mindfulness, and one context for mindfulness uh, is recognition, acceptance, interest or investigation, and non-identification. And this isn't meant to be a checklist. They might not all appear in that order, or they might not all appear. (laughs) Sometimes we just have recognition and not the others. Sometimes there's acceptance, uh, but not this deep non-identification. But when these are present, these four, uh, there'll be a feeling of... um, being able to drive through the town. There's enough understanding, wisdom there, uh, so that we don't take the experience personally and we accept what's happening. Mindfulness is what allows us to shift from uh, being lost in our experience, from thinking about the experience, denying the experience, to being able to be with the direct experience. That's, the, that's going for the ride. Recognition is fairly simple, and I think that mostly we recognize it because we go from being lost to being here. Uh, so whether it's simply being lost in thinking, and we, we realize, oh, thinking, that's recognition. Or maybe we're lost in feeling really right and we just notice we're getting, you know, happily more right, <laughs> happily more right. You know, and we're just, you know, puffing up and puffing up, and the other, wh- whoever, the situation or the person is getting more and more wrong <laughs> and more and more blameworthy uh, for what's happening. Uh, that's being lost in the experience. And you know that experience when you'd go, oh, it's just aversion, anger. That's recognition. And so we go from the darkness to the light, just with recognition. It's like it's a huge change. We go from lost to being clear. And then there's the possibility of going for the ride. So recognition has an aspect of alertness, of awakening. We wake up. Acceptance is like uh, a little white flag going up (laughs) out of the trenches. (laughs) 
you know, it's like, you know, surrender. It's okay. It's like, maybe I can try experiencing this. There's a way that acceptance is a kind of um, loving kindness or metta, because an aspect of it is patience. Patience is acceptance. So it doesn't necessarily have to have that aspect of defeat or giving in as much as um, being able to face things as they are. Because it's happening. Oh, sleepiness. And then instead of, no, <laughs> sleepiness, I don't want this. It go, you know, you shift to, oh, it's happening. It's okay, maybe I can try experiencing it. That shift um, is a, it's receptive. Acceptance is receptive. It allows us to be willing to receive the experience or to be touched by the universe with that experience. Interest, again, kind of shifts to the more active. It's, it's uh, whether something is painful, pleasant, or neutral uh, that we start saying, oh, <laughs> oh, another breath. Instead of, oh, another breath. How many more breaths are there to this sitting? I can't stand it anymore. You know, there's that, you know, there's that endlessness to things, and then suddenly we're out of time. We've shifted out of time. And it's just like it's the breath for the first time or the last time. Maybe it's not that profound. Maybe it's that maybe anger arises, and it's, it's the shift from, oh, no, not this again, to maybe I can try <laughs> being interested in this. And so you don't have to see them as totally pure, uh, but you know when they start um, appearing. Interest feels wonderful. Interest in doubt can be a very in- interesting experience. <laughs> you know, there are often doubting thoughts like, uh, I can't do this, or I can't stand this anymore, or maybe I'm not working hard enough, something like that. And usually we get so caught in the storyline, you know, we're, we bite for that thought, we identify with it, we take it personally, and we're off unusually beating ourselves up for whatever. We get lost in the doubt. We make an interpretation about ourselves with, because we've believed it. Usually we have a self-hatred attack, and then we go into hopelessness. But can you imagine having enough recognition and acceptance to have doubt come and to be interested in that? Oh, how does doubt fool me? Now, what, is, what is the type of thought? that I really get hooked by, that leads me down. Non-identification is the understanding uh, that the experience isn't referring back to a separate I, or me, or mine. Uh, One way of getting a sense of this is if you have a beautiful, clear blue sky and you start seeing the white clouds coming and going in the sky. Uh, non-identification has a kind of um, sense or taste of the relationship to the experience 
like you would relate to a cloud passing through the sky. So do we relate to doubt as a cloud that's passing through our own sky of mind or the mind? In, in a way, uh, non-identification takes the final thorn out of the experience or the sting out of the experience. There'll be times when we really are deeply, deeply accepting something, but still, say it's sleepiness, we might, we might say, okay, but still there's that trace of it's mine, <laughs> and it's still painful, rather than sensing, oh, it's just low energy, it's not personal. It's, it's like relating um, to all our experiences like a weather report. It's partly sunny today, and <laughs> there's going to be a few clouds and showers. You know, that's, that's, that's this non-identification. Recognition, acceptance, interest, or investigation, non-identification, allows us to actually have present-time awareness and have the direct experience. And so it allows us to go for the ride. As we're applying mindfulness in our life or on retreat, sometimes it feels like we're in a Model T, you know, and we're cranking it up, you know. (laughs) And we're going slow. But maybe that's better than feeling like we're on foot and we don't even have a car. You know, sometimes it feels like we're in a Porsche Sometimes the road's bumpy and we need a four-wheel drive. Or maybe we just don't have a map at all and we're bushwhacking, have no compass. So there are different factors that are taking place, coming and going, conditions like high energy, low energy, high concentration, low concentration, mindfulness, no mindfulness, equanimity, equanimity meaning that we're really okay with what's happening, no equanimity. So there'll be, uh, we aren't just given a Model T and that's it for life. It's like sometimes in the sittings and walkings in a day, you'll feel like the mindfulness, energy, and concentration comes together and you'll feel like, you know, you're in the Porsche. And we don't like it when we're back in the Model T. You know, the energy goes down, the mindfulness goes down, and it's like, (laughs) I want the other car. (laughs) You know, or we look, you know, we have a sense, you know, how much comparing we do, and somebody, you see them walk by and they look like, you know, they're just almost fully enlightened. (laughs) 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 You know, we've just bumped into a door and dropped our cup, and, (laughs) you know, they're just, you know, (laughs) coming by, uh, you know, and can you deal with that? What's hard for us is uh, holding the paradox of being here for the ride, being here for the process of mindfulness, but also having a goal. It's hard for human beings to hold paradox. So we have this deep aspiration to be free, to be liberated, and sometimes we might not be that aware of it, but often 
as we get into the practice, we start being aware of that purity and sweetness of aspiration. And then we have to be patient. You know, we have the, we can have the goal, but then we come back for the ride. And it's our unique ride, our personal story. Um, that's our car and the different, different ways that the ride unfolds. So it takes an enormous amount of courage and patience uh, to take this journey, to accept the paradox. Suzuki Roshi said that after you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. It's really important. It takes a while sometimes to get this. After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It is like going out in a shower in which you know you will get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are getting wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there is no need to worry about progress. It's like studying a foreign language. You cannot do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you will master it. That's practice. We repeat it over and over again. We repeat driving through the towns, through being with the breath, through being with hearing, seeing, aversion, attachment, happiness, being with change. The first three-month retreat that I taught, I had a student I think this is over 17 or 18 years ago, who had um, voluminous, voluminous amounts of restlessness and aversion, um, staggering amounts. <laughs> so much so that most people don't believe me, but this person had to go for about 20 or 25 mile walks every day. Really. You know, most of the day, in the daylight, he was out walking very far. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, it's like he was just in excruciating physical and mental pain. That was his first three month retreat, and it didn't really change. Uh, and then the next time he did a long retreat, it was six weeks, and then maybe another three months. And he, he kept at it. Uh, but the next one after that, the next long retreat, it was incredible the difference. He stayed on the grounds. He never went for a walk. Uh, and there was still this amazing aversion coming up at the staff, at this place, at the dangers, <laughs> at the yogis. And he just suffered so much. But he stayed with it, and uh, he did another long retreat. And that next retreat, the mindfulness started to kind of seep in deep into his body and mind. 
And there was, he was able to do the continuity like we sometimes keep stressing. And he started to understand that a lot of his anger, um, it wasn't the yogis and the staff and the teachers and the outside conditions. Uh, so he started to change his relationship to what was happening. By the end of this retreat, there, was t- there were times where he had this amazing contentment. You know, it's like the equanimity started um, developing. And he would come in sometimes and just say, you know, I've been in the valley of contentment for four hours today. Uh, and it's such a treat to see someone go from having to walk to Athol every day, if you know where that is. <laughs> just to survive, you know, being here, to that deep kind of contentment. Uh, And he still comes to retreats, long retreats, every other year about. Uh, And he works really hard, he's really humble. Uh, And his interviews are usually, he comes in very quiet, and usually there'll be these tears of gratitude, and he'll leave. Very quiet, just a lot of gratitude. He keeps putting in his time. He's learned to drive through a lot of towns, but he's not finished. Annie Dillard said in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, I think that the dying pray at the last, not please, but thank you, as a guest thanks his host at the door. We often have an experience of gratitude after uh, glimpses of understanding that we have. And sometimes there are tears. It's like uh, we've opened enough to really be with our direct experience, and we understand something. And sometimes we get these glimpses. But the emotion of of gratitude, we really recognize the relationship between putting in our time uh, and understanding. And we value the understanding. It feels wonderful. It's what we're doing here. So we learn to transform our own unique story. We all have our unique story. We all have our personal sufferings that we have been through. And we transform them into a universal wisdom and compassion. And we're all still learning. There are different ways that this unfolds for us. Sometimes you know, it, it's like there'll be somebody like the student I'm describing who really had to put in his time and suffered tremendously and is very content and happy a lot now. There was a woman that I met in Burma that uh, helps at a monastery in Rangoon at Sayada Ukundala's monastery. And she told me that uh, she started practicing meditation when she was eight years old. 
uh, and she practiced concentration meditation, samadhi practice, and she'd done samadhi practice for many, many years. And she grew up in a family of three aunties, just three aunties and her, and the aunties were very um, accomplished Vipassana meditators, very accomplished. And she was, you know, she had to be around that monastery a lot because they were devotees of Sayada Ukundala. And she um, was educated in England. And I think she's some kind of chemist or physicist and taught at a university. And she said that at a certain point when she'd go to the monastery, Sayada Ukundala would come up to her and say, you've got to start practicing Vipassana. And she said, no, no, I only want to practice samadhi practice. And so it got to the point where she started avoiding Sayadaw Ukundala, and she stopped coming to the monastery <laughs> because she didn't want him to remind her about doing Vipassana. And so she said one day she just decided that she was ready. Um, and so she <laughs> this is sort of a different kind of story than this other student. Um, <laughs> this is, she still was working eight to five, she was teaching at a university. So she would go to the monastery at night, uh, and she practiced for four nights. And on the fifth night, she started going through very deep stages of insight around dissolution, and everything started to become really unsolid, and things were, uh, she had insight into how um, transitory and ephemeral things were. And she became quite frightened. Uh, and she kept thinking, how am I going to go to work tomorrow? <laughs> how am I going to go to work tomorrow? Uh, and all this fear came up, but she stayed with it, and she stayed up all night and uh, had very deep experiences of awakening. And I kept thinking, she was working. This was five days, <laughs> you know, and she had uh, this very deep awakening. You know, so it can happen where it can be somebody like us who has to walk to Athol for a three-month retreat. Uh, and then slowly the mindfulness sinks in. Or maybe we have more of the karma of someone like that. Um, but what I found the most amazing thing about this woman is that she, after she retired, she actually did this Vipassana practice pretty close to retirement. She waited since she was eight. Uh, you know, so there must have been some ripeness there, yeah? You know, we tend to compare, but there's ripeness. Uh, and she said that it, all she wanted to do was, was try to give something back. She was so grateful. Uh, so she went to the monastery and she thought, what job is the most unpleasant yogi job here? And she thought, it's cutting the onions in the kitchen. And in that monastery, I guess they cut lots of onions, and no one wants that job. Uh, so she, she, that's what she does. And she's one of the most enlightened <laughs> teachers. I mean, I think of her as a teacher. She's incredible. And she helps a lot of the Western yogis there. Uh, and she cuts the onions. There's that range of how the practice unfolds for us. So we all have heard the stories of, uh, at the time of the Buddha, that the Buddha would just give a little sermon, and there would be like hundreds of people fully enlightened upon hearing the sermons. And whenever I hear those stories, I think, 
yep, we were all the ones who didn't get it. <laughs> we were there, <laughs> but we're still at it. <laughs> so it's important to keep that long-range view. <laughs> And we have, uh, I think it's important to hold the paradox again of the ardency and the goal of being free from suffering and that passion for freedom. And then also the patience and the courage to keep facing where we are on the ride. Over the years, it seems like um, I've seen that there are kind of two homes in meditation. And so one home that we learn to develop is the anchor. And it's, it's developing concentration, seclusion, so that no matter what's happening, no matter what town we're in, we're able to uh, find a place of neutrality and find a perspective. And this is not to be underestimated. It's really a huge part of the practice that, yeah, we're in the town, <laughs> uh, but we just move away from whatever's happening and we go to the breath. It may, if it's not the breath, maybe it's a sound. Uh, hearing is sometimes an anchor people use or sitting touching. But being able to do this is like stopping the car and putting gas in it. It's a rest, the concentration. You know, one moment of being with the breath is a moment free from mental torment. And sometimes we don't appreciate that. We forget that that moment of being free from mental torment is restful. And it builds tranquility and energy. And if we're able to do that for a while, the idea is that it gives us the strength to then face things as they are. It gives us the strength to be mindful. It gives us the, the, the energy to have the courage to face whatever town we're in. So that's so important, is to, to really start to value the anchoring, whether we're walking, the movement of the legs, or the movement of the breath. And then the other home, hopefully we don't just get an idea that that anchoring is it. The other home is pure exploration. It's really the joy of being able to learn how to drive through the towns. And to, it's, it's called momentary concentration. We're mindful of our moment-to-moment -moment experience. We're mindful of the stream of change, which brings wisdom, understanding. The practice tends to have a rhythm of going back and forth between the anchor and pure exploration, or mindfulness the anchor, pure exploration. <coughs> and that this process, not one or the other, is what allows us to, to develop understanding and contentment in this world of change. When we're lost, and when the practice can seem so difficult, or when we're confused, this is the time to anchor as much as we can, and as best we can. And other times, you know, when we're in the Porsche, <laughs> there'll be that flow of the momentary experience and the balance of mindfulness, energy, concentration will be more present. 
and experience will be like it's more transparent or watery and we go with the flow of life, we go for the ride. But please don't forget to include the anchoring, the being lost, the being clear, the being identified, the being awake as all part of it so that we don't exclude any experience from our awareness. Henry David Thoreau said that nothing must be postponed. Find eternity in each moment. I have a friend that kept trying to postpone um, experiencing loneliness. Uh, And she's a friend from Hawaii that has an incredibly busy life. She has three children, has a full-time job. And often, her and her husband, they're a very compassionate, take in people into their home that are having a difficult time. And so she managed to come to this retreat that um, happens now in Upper Burma at Chaswa Monastery. And she came last year in January. And maybe three quarters of the way through the retreat, this deep, old loneliness that she just resists very intensely started to come up. And so she came to, to an interview, and I could tell she didn't really even want to talk with me. <laughs> and uh, then toward the end of the interview, she said, oh yeah, some deep old loneliness is coming up. And then she said, never mind, I'm going to deal with that when I get home. <laughs> and she got up and, and started to walk away, and I'm like, I'll deal, I'll deal with that when I get home. And I said, you know, if I didn't know you, you might be able to get away with this. But, you know, your home is nuts, though. You're not going to be able to deal with this when you get home. It was so funny. We both just laughed for about five minutes. It was one of the most absurd thoughts I've ever heard in my life. It was so funny. Uh, but, you know, it was just no way was she going to drive through that town. <laughs> There were several other incidents uh, of resistance during that retreat. Um, actually, she had been sent during the retreat a card for her from her husband for her anniversary. Um, some mysterious things happen in Burma, and she had put it in the garbage. And uh, but in Burma, at this place. Um, there's really no garbage collectors, you know. And so most of the stuff kind of gets thrown here and there. Um, and so she thought she had uh, gotten rid of the card, and so she didn't have to kind of deal with anything that was coming up from having the card around. Uh, and somebody kept putting it at the doorway of her coochie. <laughs> And then she'd throw it away. And then somehow somebody kept putting it. She didn't even know how they knew it was hers. It was so interesting. And finally, she, she surrendered. Acceptance. The white flag. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, but you can know, you know, we laugh because we know it takes so much compassion for ourselves for the level of resistance we'll have to some things. It's because it's so painful for us. And it's okay to let the resistance be okay.
if we become mindful of resistance, we don't have to dig into what's there, because if resistance is happening in the present moment, that's what we can be mindful of. That's being mindful. And slowly, if we do that, uh, what's underneath it will, will start to appear. Our systems will trust us enough that we're not getting the shovel out, uh, that it'll, you know, that very painful stuff will start to come up as our system knows that we're not going to be in charge. So in terms of recognition, acceptance, and interest, non-identification, uh, and very simple example is with the breath. Recognition with the breath would be, uh, maybe we notice light pressure moving. So maybe we recognize um, air element. Or breathing is happening. Acceptance would be allowing it to appear just as it is. Uh, so maybe there might be wanting it to be uh, less ephemeral or maybe slower or deeper, or maybe we want more clear sensations. Uh, But acceptance is just letting it be as refined as it is. Maybe it's just very light pressure moving. Uh, Interest we can't force, but we might suddenly feel that shift from it being, oh, just another breath, to really being with the direct experience, this moment, It's that shift to timelessness, like I said again. It doesn't feel like there's a past, a future, but we're totally present with that experience. Non-identification means that we understand in that moment that there's no one who breathes, only breathing. If we have those four aspects of mindfulness present, it will feel like the breath is coming and going by itself, and we understand that it's not mine. As we start to be able to do this with a sound or a breath, then we start to be able to uh, apply it to something like loneliness, or the birth and death of a concept of a separate self, or the birth and death of a friend. It's like we, we start with sound, breath, but we can move to being able to be mindful of any experience in life. I don't know how many of you ate the carrot cake today, but if you didn't, then maybe you're a chocolate person and substitute chocolate for the carrot cake, (laughs) what I'm talking about. Uh, But say we're we're eating uh, something very sweet and we we associate pleasantness with sweetness. Uh, Sometimes we're really not recognizing what's happening. We're not aware of chewing, we're not aware of tasting, we're not aware of hardness, softness, uh, sweetness. Uh, We're not aware of swallowing. We're lost in thinking. Maybe we're wondering, maybe I should have gotten a bigger piece. (laughs) I wonder if there's any left. You know, we, we get lost in the future and we forget to be with the experience. Uh, but maybe we recognize that, we notice thinking, come back, chewing, swallowing, uh, tasting, pleasant, pleasant. Maybe we can even notice enjoyment. 
And so we're there for the ride. We don't have to do anything with that. We, push, we don't push it away and think that's wrong. There's the pleasantness. There might be enjoyment. So we learn to be mindful of that. Uh, and if there's a thought, <laughs> often there is, maybe I can get another one, then that's when we notice wanting or attachment. And then the wanting and the attachment will come and go by itself. Because we drove through the town. We didn't say, oh no, I don't want to experience wanting. Instead of treating that as something not worthy of experience, of of paying attention to, we really try to be mindful of it. There's the acceptance of wanting, there can be a non-identification with it, and we've learned how to drive through the town. We've learned how to (laughs) drive through the town of wanting. That's liberation. We often think we have to get rid of the wanting to be liberated. But actually it's much more that we learn how to experience the wanting mindfully and we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. We're not bothered by it anymore. This can get um, sometimes very subtle. Uh, So sometimes when the practice gets very quiet and we start to smell mindfulness, we start to smell equanimity, and we think, oh, this is it. (laughs) Something's going to happen. I'm going to get close, you know. And uh, we forget that what's going to happen is what's happening, (laughs) you know. And so we get lost in anticipation. And this is a really wonderfully interesting place in practice because we can get stuck in that town of anticipation a lot. We identify with it, we bite, rather than going, oh, this is the town you drive through as you go deeper in practice. It's inevitable. Expectation and and anticipation is going to appear. It's part of the landscape. It's part of getting quiet. Uh, and so often there'll be the anticipation, and we've um, been knocked out of balance by it before, and then there'll be aversion. Oh no, things were going so well. <laughs> you know, and that, oh no, you know you've lost it. Yeah? You know, it's like, and so then you have to wait till the next time <laughs> when you're back in that town, and you're back in the town again, and you learn, oh, okay, the anticipation's okay the aversion's okay, and you drive through them. And instead of all those waves and disturbance, the anticipation and the aversion don't disturb at all. You just drive through them. No problem. You don't have to get off the highway. And it's the same with everything. It's like, you know, the judging mind or the comparing mind? Learn to drive through it. The practice is um, over and over again remembering that it's the intention to understand rather than to judge. And we go through the judging town a lot, or the preference town. Uh, You don't have to get off the highway. Just drive through it. It's just judging, just aversion. It's just metta, just contentment. And there's that peace. You start learning to go for the ride. 
it's wonderful. It's liberation tastes wonderful because we see that we don't have to get rid of anything. There's no human experience we have to get rid of to be awake, to be free. It's all in how we're relating to what's happening. So no matter how old we are or how long we've been practicing, whenever we get lost, try to notice the relationship you have with what's happening and start again. It's all just noticing what's happening if we're off, lost, and that recognition, that beautiful moment of mindfulness that starts all from remembering to be here. And if we can accept that, that it's that spirit of beginning again and beginning again, and if we have the patience, it's inevitable that the wisdom and the compassion will deepen and grow. You know, as as Suzuki Roshi said, drop by drop, bit by bit. Mostly all we have to do is um, get out of the way. So I'd like to end with a a quotation from Virginia Woolf. The crown of life is neither happiness nor annihilation. It is understanding. There are the moments of revelation which compensate for the chaos, the discomfort, the toil of living. These are the moments in which all the disorder of life assumes a pattern. We see, we understand, and immediately the intolerable burden becomes tolerable. We stand for a moment on the slopes of that great mountain from the summit of which we can see the truth and thus enjoy the greatest felicity of which we are capable. We're here to develop wisdom and compassion. May we all just go for the ride. Let's sit for a minute.
May we all be liberated. <laughs>